0: Hi everyone. It feels to me that the whole world has changed since the release of the last episode. New words have entered our lexicon, restrictions have been placed in our lives, sport has been postponed, pubs closed their doors and, I can't stress this enough, Eurovision was cancelled. I don't know about you, but I've been feeling anxious and on edge all week. I know that this is a difficult time for each and every one of you, but I wanted to say a couple of things before we started this episode. Firstly, I'm fine and the podcast will continue. I've been finding great solace in the shows that I listen to, and I hope that you can find at least some temporary diversion in mine. Second, I would like to urge any of my patrons that are facing financially straightened times to pause their support for this show. I am so grateful to everyone that does support me. It does make a real difference, but I don't rely on it for my income sometimes there are more important things in life than podcasts. Thank you for listening and for supporting the show, and the best of all wishes to you and all of your families. Good luck out there. Isolation and Scandal Last time, I introduced you to young Missy of Edinburgh, the beautiful daughter of a British duke and Romanov Grand Duchess, who rejected the chance to be a future queen of her homeland to marry the heir to the throne of Romania, a nation of three parts of which one still lay in foreign ownership. Today, we will see Missy struggle to adapt to life with a husband she barely knew and a country she didn't much understand. But before we get going, I'd like to thank everyone who's been voting on the new podcast topic for the next series. The vote is still open, but there has been a pretty strong consensus on what you would like the winner to be. I'll reveal it to all my non-patrons in due course. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Over the course of this series, we've seen a good many fresh-faced young women get married and whisked off to a new life. Don't know about you, but I've often thought of it as being like when you first arrive at university, dropped off by your parents in an unfamiliar place with new people and new opportunities. It's exciting and daunting in equal measure. It's not a perfect comparison, of course. We don't usually arrive at university on the arm of a spouse we barely know, and the expectations from the faculty and fellow students are somewhat less than what is expected of a princess. Marie was intensely nervous for the whole train journey between Coburg and Bucharest, peppering her new husband with questions about what she should expect. But Nando was never a great conversationalist, and guarded her jealousy for himself, thereby preventing her from getting answers from the entourage. Her new husband was sweet and doting, but Missy was discovering that he was quite the anxious bore, and, of course, was almost as much a stranger to life in Romania as his bride. On their arrival in Bucharest, Missy dressed in a special outfit that her mother had picked out for her. It was an ostentatious number, consisting of a violet and gold fur-lined cape over a green velvet gown with a colour so expansive that you could barely see her head, which was topped with a sort of miniature amethyst-studded golden toque hat. She must have been quite the sight as she detrained with her husband, and was introduced to the great and good of Bucharest society. The first thing that greeted Missy was a cacophony of sound, as the soldiers detailed to guard the party cheered loudly. The crowds that came to see her were many ranks deep, and they too were making a great deal of noise. The mayor of Bucharest had prepared a fancy speech, but he couldn't make himself heard over the din, so had to make do with the traditional offering of bread and water. Next, Missy was introduced to the Prime Minister and the Cabinet, followed by senior members of Parliament, and then representatives of the church, military, and academia. It was quite a whirlwind of pomp, titles, and new faces, and quite bewildering to the rather overwhelmed new crown princess of Romania. After being led into a coach and driven through the streets of the capital to more cheering crowds, Missy arrived at the royal palace in Bucharest. Now I'm sure you have an image of what a monarch's principal residence should look like. Grand, imposing, luxurious. Palatal Victoriae, or the Victory Palace, was none of those things. Remember that Romania had only been an independent country for around 15 years, and so it had not had the time to build a traditional palace in the style of, say, Windsor Castle, or the Palace of Versailles. Missy later described the nondescript two-storey building as being, quote, not very imposing, squat, low, and of no distinct style. Enclosed by a security fence and dark throughout, it was a far cry from the palaces and castle of her youth. And it only got worse when she was led into her private apartments her husband and king carol had done their best to decorate them in her honour but they shall we say did not have a tremendous sense of style in missy's words they were quote rich dark pompous unhomelike inhospitable rooms all windows doors and fixtures and nowhere a cosy corner nowhere a fireplace nowhere any flowers and nowhere a comfy chair The following days were given over to ceremonies in her honour, which only served to further overwhelm the homesick Missy. But quite soon after, life settled into a pattern that would more or less remain the same for the rest of her time as crown princess. King Carol cared very deeply about maintaining the balance of political power between the liberals on one side and conservatives on the other, and feared that his heir and new bride might ally with one side or the other. He trusted absolutely no one, especially not Missy's ladies, even though he had unpicked them, so they were not often around to attend Missy. This all meant that she spent pretty much all of her time with Carol and her husband. She was banned from visiting private residences, had to get special permission to leave the country, consent that was rarely given, and was basically not allowed to have any friends. They ate every meal as a three, and spent most evenings together as well. She had grown up in a household that put a lot of store in exercise and spending time outdoors, but now she was forced to stay inside, wandering the halls in a vain attempt to pass the time. Just imagine for a second, being a teenager, married to a man you barely know, living in a country you don't understand, and then being forced into isolation. Missy was a high-spirited, energetic girl, who was full of heart and charm. And yet she was forced to live in a world of restraint and discipline. It was no fun at all. If you were expecting her husband to come to her rescue, then think again. Nando was one of history's most passive characters, dominated by his uncle and unwilling to go against his wishes, even if it meant supporting his new young wife. It was said of him that Nando was, quote, his uncle's nephew, a man of duty, trained to do his uncle's bidding, trained to see with his uncle's eyes, almost to use his uncle's words. And then, to capital off, Missy quickly became pregnant. It took a long time for her to realise this. She had spent many days feeling tired, sick and getting hot flushes, but she just thought she was under the weather. It took a visit from one of her mother's ladies for her to be told what it all meant. Missy's experience of pregnancy in Romania was very different from what it might have been had she married a Brit. Back home, pregnancy was seen but rarely spoken about. It was a very private affair. In Romania, Missy couldn't move without people asking her questions, offering advice, or even just offering her hearty congratulations. It was well-meaning, but again, quite overwhelming. Luckily for Missy, her mother, Marie, who had just officially become Duchess of Saxopoga and Gotha after the death of Duke Ernest and the accession of her husband, came to Romania to help preside over the birth. Marie was an experienced mother and a Romanov, and so cut quite the figure as she tore up the king's plans and set about making things for her daughter as comfortable as possible. One of the biggest fights was over the use of chloroform. We've talked about this before, but the use of anaesthetic during childbirth was highly controversial at the time. Many doctors and clergy, the Romanians in particular, believed that pain during childbirth was necessary as it reminded the mother of the sins of Eve. Marie was adamantly opposed to this, as was Queen Victoria, and their twin pressures meant that Mrs. labour pains were not as agonising as they were for almost all women at that time. On the 15th of October, 1893, Missy gave birth to, joy of joys, a son, whom she and her husband named Carol after the king. The birth of her child gave her little pleasure, however, and it's quite possible that she suffered from postnatal depression. But no sooner had she given birth than she was pregnant again. In the middle of her second pregnancy, her favourite sister, Victoria Melita, nicknamed Ducky in the family, got married to Grand Duke Ernest of Hesse whom you may remember as being the eldest son of Princess Alice. This was a terrible match from start to finish. For a start, Ducky was passionately in love with another one of her cousins, Grand Duke Kirill Vladimirovich. However, unlike the Protestant faith, Russian Orthodoxy banned first cousin marriages, so they were banned from tying the knot, forcing Ducky to acquiesce to the marriage that her family wanted her to make. It made perfect sense on paper but none in real life. The other major event that happened during her second pregnancy was the return to Romania of Queen Elizabeth. If you remember from last time, she had been exiled from Romania after she had encouraged Nando to marry one of her ladies-in-waiting. Her marriage to King Carol had never been a happy one, and it's easy to see why. He was stoic, disciplined and serious. She... Well, she is known to history as the Poet Queen, she took the non-diplume of Carmen Silver and wrote everything from plays and novels to short stories and, yes, poems. She was, to put it mildly, quite the handful. Prone to histrionics, favoring quacks and with an affinity for the melodramatic, Elizabeth was unpredictable and eccentric. And now she was back. For Missy, this brought about a few challenges. First of all, she was no longer the senior lady at court and Elizabeth made sure that she knew it. Pretty much the only thing that she had in common with her husband, and indeed Missy's mother Marie, was their shared sense of their own imperial superiority and elevated station. Second, with these two disparate personalities to please, she found it difficult to please them both, frequently ending up pleasing neither. And third, Elizabeth had never gotten over the loss of her daughter, and the fact that she had borne no further children. And this meant that she wanted to have quite the influence on the lives of Missy's children. Elizabeth returned to Romania just as Missy was beginning her confinement, and she did not appreciate her aunt-in-law's approach. She later wrote, "'Auntie, overcome by the poignant memories of her own maternity and of her many frustrated hopes, was much agitated and moved by this family event.' and kept exhorting me to realise that this was the most wonderful, glorious, blissful hour of my life. Torn to pieces by excruciating pain, I could in no wise rise to the height of her enthusiasm, and wept with longing for my mother, who only appeared on the scene a few days later. Her dear face and sober ways were like a safe haven after having been tossed on alien seas. I clung to her, needing the security of her quiet masterfulness, which brought everything back to the normal. Elizabeth refused to allow Missy chloroform, as she had been provided during her first pregnancy, intensifying her pain and stress still further. Despite this, on the 12th of October 1894, she gave birth to a daughter, whom they named Elizabeth after the newly returned Queen. After her dreadful experience, she resolved to take a break from childbirth, Remember that she had been more or less constantly pregnant for the last two years, and she felt that she had a right to a life outside constant pregnancy. Now, this was quite a thing to do, and took quite some convincing on her part against the religious and dynastic pressures. And it is a testament to her strength of character that she followed through with it, despite all those demands. Another example of her strength of will came a few months later, when she requested leave to go home to Coburg for Christmas. Remember that she had to get permission from the king to go literally anywhere, and he was extremely stingy in giving that permission. He wanted the family to stick together, to show a united front. He had given his whole life over the defence and strengthening of Romania, and could not understand why others did not share his single-minded dedication to the country. But of course Missy had family that she deeply cared for outside the country, and she desperately needed to get away from Elizabeth and the court. Eventually, she managed to broker a compromise. She was allowed to leave, but had to leave her children behind. This must have been a terrible rent for the young mother, but for her own sanity, it was something that she knew she needed to do. This iron will, an unwillingness to be browbeaten, is commendable, but it also made her enemies. A triumvirate of haters emerged that was determined to bring her down. The first member of this group was Queen Elizabeth. She thought that Missy was too proud, too foreign to be worthy of being the future Queen of Romania. She disliked the fact that, unlike the fawning and sycophantic group of admirers that she surrounded herself with, Missy knew her own mind and expressed her own will. The second was one of Elizabeth's ladies, Olga Mavrieni. She had been appointed by Carol to keep an eye on his wife, but Missy found that she was quite at home, stirring up trouble against her. And the third was someone we haven't talked about for a few months, except for a brief mention yesterday, and that was Princess Charlotte of Germany, alternately nicknamed Ditta or Charlie. She was the eldest daughter of the now Dowager Empress Vicky of Germany, and was part of the family that had become estranged from their mother. The Kaiser's sister had a reputation for moving from court to court in Europe Intriguing and gossiping her way into elite circles and leaving a great many people in her wake. As an avowed anglophobe with the ear of the king and queen, she was determined to quash any feelings of independent spirit in Missy and made her life very difficult. First, the triumvirate came for her kids. They argued that she was too young and irresponsible to be allowed to be in charge of her children's lives they manoeuvred Queen Elizabeth in position to be in control of their education and of the people that took care of them. Next, they ensured that Missy would be monitored at all times by people loyal to them. By now, Nando and Missy had been given their own home, Cotroceni Palace, then on the outskirts of Bucharest, the building that today is the home of the President of Romania. They made sure that every servant in that palace was in their pay, and report on Missy's every word and movement. With massive restrictions on her movement, with spies surrounding her at all times, and a husband too meek to argue on her behalf, Missy was in a gilded prison. This meant that she had to take every freedom that she could win for herself, and hold it tightly. She rejoiced in going for horse rides and picnics in the grounds of her palace. She later said, quote, Riding played an enormous part in my life. To some this may appear trivial, but I had an instinctive sense of self-preservation. The court disapproved of all this riding, thinking that it was too dangerous and may hamper her ability to have further children. But Missy defied them all, even winning herself the grudging admiration of the king. Quote, Uncle got accustomed to seeing me on a horse, and would greet me with a kindly smile when I came riding towards him through the woods. In his steely makeup, there was some corner which was in sympathy with this Anglo-Saxon girl, whose will he could not break. He did not approve of me, I was a constant anxiety, but he liked me, in spite of himself. In 1897, Missy's sister Ducky and her husband Ernest came for a visit. Whenever Missy was with her sister, she felt new life being breathed into her. Ducky was a vivacious tomboy who was nicknamed the Fighting Grand Duchess and complimented Missy's love of fun and adventure. One of their cousins once described them at this time as being, quote, as beautiful as they were charming. With her sister backing her up, not to mention a Grand Duke, Missy was able to ease off her shackles and enter society while they were around. The Romanian aristocracy was very much unlike those of Britain and Germany. Divorce was not seen as a social taboo, and a greater store was placed on intellect and wit than on reserve and military prowess. This cocktail produced a vibrant, romantic, almost hedonistic society where everyone spoke a multitude of languages and was sleeping with everyone's spouse – It's easy to see why King Carol disapproved of it so much. As you can imagine, this is quite an overwhelming atmosphere for Missy to be thrust into, but she embraced it with gusto. One society lady recalled, quote, She was known to arrive early and leave last. One more dance, please, she was known to plead at five o'clock in the morning, when Granny felt near collapsing, while my father had already gone secretly down to the kitchen to order breakfast. She was always very well, but most spectacularly dressed, in light tools or muslins, sequined, embroidered, or covered with feathers. When they were not parting the night away together, the two sisters went on adventures in the countryside, exploring ruins, having picnics at scenic vistas, and visiting local towns to see ordinary Romanian life. These weeks of enjoyment, though, came to an abrupt halt in May when her husband Nando was struck down with typhoid fever. Doctors were at his side 24 hours a day, and he was frequently at death's door. He was often delirious and suffered complications like pneumonia. The situation would have been bad enough without the histrionics of Queen Elizabeth. Quote, her imagination saw, and to a certain degree even reveled in, the tragedy that it would be if the young crown prince were to die the old king, a child of four, becoming heir to the throne, a young widow, foolish, experienced, unworthy of bringing up her own children, and she, Carmen silver, as saviour, in her element, with large motherly gestures, sweeping the bereaved into her embrace. She imagined it all, she lived it through in thought, and as her thoughts became words, she, to say, forced us to live it with her, for she spoke of nothing else. Each time she mounted the high Contrachenni stairs, leaning upon the arm of a servant, and she came twice a day, it was as though for a funeral, and the swish of her long robes over the carpets was pregnant with disaster. Her daily invasion was indeed gorgeous tragedy in sceptred Paul come sweeping by. She would settle down in one of my rooms, assembling around her as many women of the household as she could gather together, and then in a deep grief-laden voice she would gloat over every tragic story of sickness or death that she or others had ever witnessed. I confess that I fled from these meetings, to which the doctors were also bidden, and whichever of the nurses was not on duty. I simply could not stand so much talk at a moment when my heart was on the rack. I preferred Uncle's stony Calm. He was very kind to me during this terrible time, and he, no more than I, could relieve his anxiety by words. Nando survived this bout with death, but his recovery took quite some time. In her words, he was, quote, pale, exhausted, with a brown beard, terribly changed, with gaunt, waxen face, sunken cheeks. His looks, such as they were, never recovered. For the rest of his life, he would look age before his time, sunken and haggard, a scarecrow of a man. When the court departed for their annual summer decampment to Sinai in the Carpathian Mountains, Missy and Nando stayed behind so that he could continue his recovery. As her husband was indisposed, the king appointed an army officer called Lieutenant Zizi Kantakuzeni to be her aide de Camp. He was a member of her own Hussar regiment, and though not a man blessed with good looks, he was a snappy dresser and a great wit, traits highly valued in Romanian society. With the king and queen gone, and her husband indisposed, Missy lived a life of gay abandon that summer. She's fairly cryptic about this period in her autobiography, but does say that, quote, after the long strain, my youthful spirit gained the upper hand again. What she failed to realise was that just because her enemies had gone, the spies remained. She later wrote, all through life I was inconceivably careless about how my actions might appear to others. I never even thought of how things might look from the outside. Live and let live was my motto. It never struck me that my high spirits could fill others with suspicion, nor that my actions could be misinterpreted, which they nearly always were. But high spirits are a dangerous possession for a royal lady, as there come hours when everything is unimportant but the joy of the moment. Caution is thrown to the winds, and the spirit of fun and mischief is allowed full sway, mostly with disastrous results. For all the world over there, there are jaundiced eyes ready to see things as they are not, ready to make mischief, to tear a reputation to pieces." The triumvirate at court were all too quick to insinuate King Carol that the crown princess was rather too close to her aide-de-camp. Who knows what they are got up to on those long rides in the woods, what lay behind their long glances or whispered conversations. And then things got really ugly. While pregnant with her third child and on a trip to the seaside resort of Costanza, she was asked by the queen to entertain one of Lieutenant Cantacuzene's female cousins, the three spent a great deal of time together, driving through the streets some joined parties and conversing on her yacht. This caused quite the scandal, and saw Missy getting a royal ticking off from King Carol on her return to court. When she protested that she had only entertained the Cantacuzennis at the Queen's request, Elizabeth brazenly denied ever doing such a thing. Gleefully, Elizabeth then wrote letters that spread across Europe, detailing the scandal in lurid prose one of the letters reached England and the hands of the elderly Queen Victoria, who wrote to King Carol about her displeasure that such a story had not been handled with more discretion. Elizabeth, of course, denied ever writing these letters. The lieutenant, having unwittingly played his part in the Queen's game, was transferred to another regiment. As I said earlier, this was all part of a concerted campaign on Queen Elizabeth's part to take control of Missy's children from her, to poison their minds against her and raise them according to her own values and views. Missy was forced to accept the Queen's choice of governess and educational principles for her children. This was a bitter pill to swallow, but without her husband to back her up due to his meekness and ill health, and with the King's mind poisoned against her by the Grima-worm-tongue-like triumvirate, she had no power to prevent it. Now, I guess the question that you're all asking is whether Missy had an affair with Lieutenant Zizi. They certainly had a romance, and were closer than the Crown Princess should have been to her aide-de-camp. Did it go further than that, to some, shall we say, hanky-panky? Well, we don't know for sure, but there is one thing. Missy was pregnant at the time, and to let the scandal blow over, she went to Coburg to see her mum and while there, the child was born. Nothing is known about what happened to it. Whether it was a stillbirth or the child was given up for adoption, it is a mystery. Could it have been the lieutenant's baby? We'll never know. As you might expect, Missy's mother went into full mama bear mode. Writing to King Carol, she described her daughter as having committed a serious and unpardonable fault, but she wasn't the only one to blame. First, she placed Nando in her crosshairs, criticizing quote, his laziness, his indolence, his antipathy for all work, for any serious endeavor. He himself would avow that he treated his wife like a mistress, caring little for her emotional well-being, in order to constantly assuage his physical passions. Next, she took aim at the king and queen. Quote, I can never understand why you did not try to keep the deplorable story within the family. But, alas, it has become the public property of all sorts of ruling families. All my Russian and English sisters-in-law, my brothers, know all the details of this terrible story, hinting that they heard it from gossip and letters coming directly from Romania and evidently spread to blacken the reputation of my daughter. I can never pardon you, my dear cousin, for not having wanted to restrain the scandal. Sufficiently chastened, Carol allowed Missy to return to Romania, where she and Nando somewhat rekindled their relationship. They would never be an ideal husband and wife. They were too different for that. But they grew to have more of an understanding with each other. Indeed, in 1900, they would come to have another child, Marie, nicknamed Mignon, followed by two more, with Nicholas in 1903 and Yelena in 1909. Missy was a loving but rather ineffectual mother. She had been forced to fight for any influence over their upbringing, and so was extremely lax in terms of discipline. Her children were spoiled, none more so than her eldest son Carol, who wanted for nothing at all, fostering an arrogant and demanding personality. Elizabeth was an unpopular child Lazy and antisocial, she possessed an innate sense of her own superiority without any of the intellectual or physical attributes to back it up. Mignon was quite unlike her siblings. She had been born while her mother was still in the doghouse over her affair with Lieutenant Zizi, and developed a far closer bond with her mother than her elder siblings. Kind, happy and modest, she was a calm and tranquil child. But like her sister put on weight which rather offended the slim and fashionable Missy. Nicholas was a charming child, possessing a tremendous sense of humour, and unlike his siblings, was very active. However, as he got older, he became increasingly hyperactive, and his charms made it difficult for anyone to punish him, making him grow arrogant like his brother Carol. Finally came Elena, who, of all her children, was most like Missy she described her daughter as being, quote, the child of my soul, with Elena possessing the same kindness and relaxed charm as her mother. Although life in Romania got a little better for Missy after the Lieutenant Zizi scandal blew over, the restrictions on her movement and social circle were still held tight. Missy wasn't even allowed to attend the funeral of her grandmother, Queen Victoria, in 1901, but the king couldn't refuse to let her travel to her uncle King Edward VII's coronation, the following year, as she was formally invited, and one cannot refuse another king's invitation. While in the country, she met Waldorf and Pauline Astor. They were scions of the Astor family, an immensely wealthy dynasty hailing from New York. Indeed, one of their ancestors, John Jacob Astor, apparently has the distinction of being America's first multi multi-millionaire. Missy found that she had much in common with Waldorf and Pauline. They were both fun-loving people who lived lonely lives under the watchful eye of a stern and oppressive man. For Missy, it was King Carol. For the Astors, it was their father. After connecting that summer, the Astors made annual visits to Romania and quickly grew to love this strange country. Missy loved them both but was particularly attached to Waldorf. And though there was no evidence that their friendship ever became as scandalous as that with Lieutenant Zizi, she undoubtedly cared for him greatly. In her autobiography, she describes him as having, quote, an extraordinarily sweet and unselfish nature, very unusual in one so young, He was exceedingly thoughtful for others and was continually inventing occasions for giving pleasure. And this charming quality, coupled with a keen sense of humour, made everything, even official ceremonies and national festivities, a source of amusement. Missy lived for their visits, taking care to squeeze every enjoyment that she could while they were with her, and counting down the days until she would see them again. She sent avalanches of letters to them both, somewhat overwhelming the Astors, but Missy couldn't restrain herself. She had friends from outside her family at last. Unfortunately for her, the Astors had their own lives to lead. In 1904, Pauline married a former army officer and future Conservative MP, Herbert Spender-Clay. And in 1906, Waldorf tied the knot with a fiery-tempered American divorcee called Nancy Shaw, who would later become, as Nancy Astor, the first ever female British MP to take her seat in the House of Commons. Missy was very supportive of Waldorf and his choice of a wife, even writing a letter to Nancy to urge her to choose him of her other suitors. She did this out of genuine affection for Waldorf, but she also hoped that she might add Nancy Astor to her cadre of friends. She was then very disappointed when Romania was not placed on the itinerary for Waldorf and Nancy's honeymoon trip around Europe, and was even more distressed when it appeared that they had no immediate plans to come and see her. Missy clearly had no concept of the third wheel, and her letters became ever more constant and less subtle, detailing her unhappiness and loneliness in Romania. From this distance, her letters appear pitiful, but to Waldf and Nancy, they must have seemed to be desperate and clingy. In one, she wrote, quote, "I long so to hear from you both, as I have been feeling desperately lonely." but indeed it's a very great disappointment that you are not coming. I clung to the hope of your coming with all the strength of my poor, worried heart. I know you would have come if you had been able, and that it consoles me in some sort of little way, but I want just to tell you openly why I mind so very much. You will build up your life and get into your habits and have other friends, and poor, lonely me will have to get on as best I can with nothing to look forward to. Missy wrote to them both, but most of all to Waldorf, with letters arriving every day on his doorstep. Unsurprisingly, his new wife put a stop to this. She wasn't going to be the Diana to Missy's Camilla, but she wasn't able, or indeed willing, to force Waldorf to cut Missy out of his life. They kept in touch, and Missy was even named godmother to their first child, but Nancy would never let them have the same intensity of friendship as they had had before. Thankfully for Missy, however, by this time the restrictions placed on her by King Carol were finally loosening, allowing her once more to enter Romanian society. She was now in her late 20s and had a far greater understanding of the country in which she lived and how to act in its social scene. She had always possessed great charm and adored being around people, and this allowed her to become popular in aristocratic circles in a way that her cousin, Alex of Hesse, never managed. She gathered a close circle of somewhat eccentric friends. The first of these was Maruka Kantakuzeni, a relative of Zizi's and the wife of the mayor of Bucharest. Missy describes it in her book as being, quote, tall, handsome, dark-eyed, exceedingly striking, She could occasionally be erratic and was certainly an original. Her company was stimulating, but it was no good going against her queer ideas. She was a bit of an agoraphobe, refusing to go to other people's houses, but became famed for her own parties, which took place in her own dimly lit salon, where she would gather associates around her couch, refusing to rise even for the Crown Princess of Romania. There would always be excellent food and music, but always a light-hearted and fun atmosphere. Another woman with whom she became close was Martha Babesco. Married to a princely family, she was obsessed by royalty and aristocracy. Quote, The great of this world, royal or otherwise, interested her beyond measure. Great names, great success, great talent, fabulous careers, all these things fascinated the little girl with the big brown eyes and eager inquiring brain. I liked to have her with me. She was so interesting, so stimulating, and the adoration she had for me was pleasant to my young vanity. Martha, like most of Romanian society, valued intellect and artistic talent, with her friends numbering some of the best artists, writers and scientists in the land. She was also a great writer in her own right, publishing her first novel at 18, called The Eight Paradises. This was awarded the French Academy Prize – and won her the admiration of none other than Marcel Proust, who called her, quote, a sculptor of words, a musician, a purveyor of sense, a poet. But Missy's best friend would always be her sister Ducky. She had recently divorced her husband Ernest of Hesse, and helped Missy to create her own salon in her home in the Contrachene Palace. Decorated in the Byzantine style, her rooms became opulent and colourful, festooned with flowers, rugs and decorated cushions. Even Queen Elizabeth counted herself as an admirer of Missy's salon, calling it, quote, something between an Indian temple and a fairy tale, so lovely, marvellously beautiful and so original. Missy also grew a little close to the king, with her bonds cementing in 1906 when he fell ill and she helped to nurse him back to health, paying daily visits and listening to him as he discussed Romanian politics. Finally, Carol was beginning to notice what an asset he had in Missy, and he grew to admire her intelligence and ability. In 1907, the Kingdom of Romania saw the biggest peasant uprising in its young history. Starting as a pogrom against Jews that they saw as hoarding wealth for the nobility, the uprising quickly grew into a full-blown rebellion with the countryside lit up by the flames of burning manors and palaces. Absentee landlords were their primary target, but soon even large-scale tenant farmers found themselves under attack. Worried about the rebellion spreading, Austria-Hungary massed troops in Transylvania and looked set to use the crisis as a pretext to invade. To respond, Carroll mobilised his forces and brutally suppressed the rebellion. Killing over 10,000 rebels over the course of a few days. Villages were razed and anyone suspected of involvement was arrested or executed. Missy, along with a host of the rest of the nobility, was sent to the royal retreat at Sinai in the Carpathian Mountains. There, she met a man who had become one of her closest friends over the next few decades, Prince Barbo Sturby. Barbo was from one of Romania's oldest and most noble families. Educated at the Sorbonne, he was smart, charming and sophisticated, and bore a striking likeness to World of Astor. He made his fortune in produce, with his company growing, transporting and selling food and drink across the country and region. His wines in particular were synonymous with quality, but of course this meant that his estates had come under attack during the uprising. His political inclinations, however, swung liberal, And he became something of a political mentor for Missy. She had never known someone like Barbo before—someone mature, sophisticated, kind, and willing to take her seriously. He taught her the ways Romanian politics, how things got done, and how things should be. In return, she gave him her full attention and admiration, not to mention the added status of being a close confidant of royalty. But she took a long time to return his romantic advances he was used to women being instantly attracted to him but missy took a long time to return those affections but barbo persisted for he saw past missy's beauty and vivacity to so notice what extraordinary potential she had he knew that soon she would be queen of romania the wife of a king that was easily persuaded and dominated together the two of them would forge a formidable partnership that would dominate Romanian politics for decades to come. And it is there, with Missy about to emerge on the Romanian political scene, that I will leave you for this week. Next time, as the whole of the Balkans turns to hell in a handbasket from 1913 onwards, Missy gains influence and finally, after the end of World War I, consolidates her position as arguably the most powerful woman in all of Europe.